and gentlemen, hello again and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. On today's episode, I am joined by Jess Chapman. Hello, Jess. How are you? Good, Chris. How are you? I am well. It's good to have you back on the show. Hopefully we can upset more people. Do you want to talk about Ben Shapiro before we get started? Generally, I'd like to avoid talking about Ben Shapiro. I find that it's very difficult to be a happy person who thinks about Ben Shapiro. And that goes for Ben Shapiro. Yeah, I don't think Ben Shapiro's a happy person, and he thinks about Ben Shapiro probably as much as anyone in the country. I think he spends most of his time thinking about the larger, tougher boys in his class who pushed him into mud puddles. I think that's what drives most of his decisions. I will say, since we've taped that episode, a thing I have become acutely aware about him, that is his worst non-political take, although I guess you could certainly construe this as political too, is he is doggedly defending this notion that rap and hip-hop is not music because it doesn't meet his father, who is a music theorist, I don't know if you've heard about this, uh, his father's theory of music, which says that music has to have rhythm, melody, and there was a third thing, but rap fails it has words and it has rhythm but it doesn't have melody or doesn't have chords and as such it fails to meet the Shapiro test for what is and is not music well if you think about it from a classical perspective perhaps it doesn't meet that definition but not all music can be judged by classical standards I dare say rap is one of a few genres that can't so there's a couple of reasons why I think the classical, and this is definitely what Shapiro's going with, why that theory stalls out. The big one, the most obvious one, is that hip-hop does have chords. Check out, like, The Roots. Check out a lot of the music that gets sampled in hip-hop, a lot of which comes from funk, which has advanced, you know, seven sharp nine chords, 13th chords. And then, kind of the humdinger on this, a lot of times hip-hop samples classical music. It's true. I mean, my favorite example of this is Exhibit's Paparazzi. I can't name off the top of my head the classical song that it samples, but I will say it's very commonly used among figure skaters, which is a testament to its musicality. Yeah, and so, I mean, I, I just think it's a, a lazy take that speaks to other cultural takes of Ben Shapiro's, but this one I just find particularly grating because he's trying to cite music theory, and I can't argue every historical point. I'm not a historian. I do know a thing or two about music theory, and this is just, it's a completely bankrupt take, and it's also a borderline racist one. Well, you realize that by having as strong a reaction to it as you do, Ben Shapiro has done his job. He's triggered a lip. Yeah, that is the whole point, right? Like, I mean, I, that I think is the whole point. It's the whole point. It's you pass yourself off as an intellectual, but really what you are is a troll. Absolutely. And the sad thing is, and this is something I keep coming back to, the sad thing is that Ben Shapiro has the intellectual capacity to be more than a troll, but he's not using it. That is the line that got us in trouble in the review last time. And you is went it? there and you, yes, it is. And you went there and you just said it again. So that guy's going to go back in. He's going to, he threatened to drop the star rating from like two all the way down to a one. I mean, if he kills oh, the star shit. ratings, Jess, if he kills the star ratings. <sighs> uh, I am so sorry. Me too. Me too. Should I, should I do a retraction right now? Um, I'm. No, I, I, we're just going to have to press on. We're, so Donald Trump's getting impeached. 
Um, <laughs> that's happening. Jess, what, uh, what are your top line thoughts about Donald Trump getting impeached? I will say that Bill Clinton's impeachment is one of the first news stories I was ever aware of as a young child. So this really feels like a throwback to me. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. No, I, I remember my grandma getting the Clinton Chronicle VHSs in the mail from God knows what crazy like male conservative thing that she had signed up to back in the day. And that sounds like an American spectator level thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, this, this, my grandma was signed up for some like deep stuff. They such a VHSs. You know what I mean? Like that's, you, you got to, those were expensive back in the day. VHS, they, were. they were not just giving those away. Yeah, it's the sort of thing you pay for in installments if you buy them off TV. I was talking with a friend of the show, Bruce Carlson, here today, and he said something that sent chills down my spine, which is that impeachment has effectively been dumbed down to the new government shutdown. Wow. That's scary to think about. And it feels because- right. Because when you consider your very lengthy list of all of Trump's impeachable offenses, it does feel a little bit like something that has been coming for months and is mostly showmanship between two parties. Yeah, and I feel like Pelosi got stuck in a corner where she had no choice but to impeach him. And that this entire year has really been centered around that quote she gave back in January or February, uh, he's just not worth it. I think that was her default position, but the Ukraine scenario, and also as as you kind of teased here, I was going to spell out, my belief is that this has been a pattern of behavior for two years. So the Ukraine is not like some acute blister or boil. It's a boil that's part of a larger infection. That is Trump's pattern of behavior. So what you're seeing is like this particular acute rupture, but there's something much deeper happening underneath the surface that has been happening, and you kind of backtrack it. But I, I don't think Pelosi had much of a choice but to impeach after the fact set of the Ukraine situation came out. And I, But I also think that she's not really serious about it. Just to skip ahead real quickly, she shows up with this USMCA thing on the same day that she's saying, in effect, the president's unfit to serve as the president of the United States of America. See, I'm going to give her a little more credit. I think she has perhaps not an expectation, but she's aware of the possibility that if Mike Pence is caught up in a Ukraine-themed impeachment, she could be president of the United States. So this is her way of proving that she can handle more than one issue at one time. Oh, man. That I, that gives her more credit. But that also is a bit of an indictment on her serving as the Speaker of the House in that functionary in a constitutional way, right? No, I wouldn't say so. It's very natural in the line of succession. She well, she's is thinking about her. becoming president instead of thinking about the more acute scenario of holding Donald Trump accountable to Congress and her role as the Speaker of the House. Well, let's make no mistake. This trade deal is also extremely important. There are two other countries counting on her, and it's very clear that Trump and Pence are asleep at the wheel of this trade deal, so who else is going to do it? Like, Here's another way of looking at this whole scenario from like a Trumpist perspective. This week, Donald Trump 
in the midst of the Democrats frothing about impeachment, was able to extract from Nancy Pelosi the trade deal that he wanted. So now he can say he's getting things done. But it was something that didn't need to get done. This renegotiation happened entirely because he thought NAFTA was deficient. The other two countries, Canada and Mexico, went with it because they want a trilateral trade deal. So unfortunately, he is the most powerful of the three. And he did find a way to make it a do or die issue. So of course, Canada and Mexico had to be at the table. And I'm sorry that he's had such a profound impact on the process. But now that it is happening, it wouldn't be in Pelosi or anyone else's best interest to just leave it by the wayside. No, but you don't announce the passage of it on the same day that you're saying that he's unfit for office within the same half day. Those press conferences were scheduled hours apart. I think that you could have, I don't know, maybe staggered it a week. It is quite jarring. Perhaps Pelosi could have done more to give more verbal credit to Canada and Mexico for its passage. But then people would accuse her of being petty. Uh, the issue is the timing. It's not uh, not the framing. It's the timing. And I'm sure how- she's not happy about the timing, but these are the sorts of things you have to deal with when you're in a role of as great importance as hers. But she can schedule these things. I, and so, to your point, this is a role that is of great importance. She has the ability to schedule these votes. She has the ability to choose when we're going to vote on impeachment and when we're going to vote on the USMCA and when we're going to have a press conference on impeachment and when we're going to have a press conference on the USMCA. And I can't explain the affirmative choice of pairing these two things together. I'm guessing there was some logistical issue that made it impossible to do any other day. And keep in mind that today is Friday the 13th, so that explains why. So, impeachment. Where do you stand on Donald Trump? Just in a vacuum, not pull out the politics of the Democrats and the Republicans. Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America. Has he done things in his conduct as president of the United States of America that merit what let's say the common conception of impeachment was in, let's pick a year, 2013, 2014, the before time, any any part of the before time. If you're asking me if Obama had done any of these things, would he be going through impeachment proceedings right now? Oh, yeah, now? there's a great question. Yeah, how about that? Let's run with that framing, sure. Yes, of course. <laughs> how is that a question? I don't know. It apparently is in the media. <laughs> they're they're kind of playing 50-50 ball on this. I, I, I No, I, I think this uh, is... Yeah, that, that's a very common problem in the media where they have to treat both sides of the story as perfectly equal. No. Journalism should be about initially weighing both sides of an argument as equal and then hopefully arriving at a decision over which one has more merit than the other. I sent you my list of kind of the five articles of impeachment that I would go with, with kind of like some sub bullets. Was there anything that I missed to your eye when you were looking through these? Um, it's hard to tell what you missed because it's hard to keep track of everything. I admired that you were able to build a list at all. Uh, I do agree with you that they should have pursued impeachment proceedings based on emoluments and 
uh, definitely contravention of election law. I'm not sure about mental capacity. I agree with you that Trump's mental acuity is definitely an open question. But I'm not sure, unless he was a paranoid schizophrenic who was a danger to himself or others, that those would be sufficient grounds for impeachment. So I went back and forth on the mental capacity thing. I don't want to throw Bruce under the bus here, but Bruce Carlson kind of talked me back odd to the mental capacity thing because I was initially not in favor of that. Let's start on that one first. Here's what got me back on the trolley with this is all of the reporting that came out about how the cabinet was legitimately considering 25th Amendment talk in a serious way, and that there was actual chatter back and forth, an attempted head count and everything. That was a big weight on the scale for me throwing it back on there. It seems to me that there's a story to tell there about what Trump's like inside the White House, away from the cameras, when he thinks that no one's really paying attention to him. When he's well, not there have on. been many stories about what goes on inside the White House, usually as a result of people speaking on background. We know he behaves like a toddler-in-chief. You cite the toddler-in-chief thread by Daniel Dresner. We know this is how he is. The question is, what impact does that have on the way he executes the responsibilities of his office. And when you consider everything else on your list, those are what lead to impeachment talk at the end of the day. If he was simply someone who behaved childishly in private or what he assumed to be in private, but still got his job done and perhaps wasn't ethically pure, but was pretty okay, then he would basically be a bunny ears lawyer of a president. And this was just a quirk we would have to accept because he was doing his job. I believe that he's simply not sharp enough to understand the role of the president. What are the checks and balances? What can the president do? What can't the president do? I I believe that if you gave him a basic citizenship test, he would fail it. He would fail it so fast. So very, very poorly. (laughs) He would fail it hard. Um, And I think you have seen his lack of mental acuity, mental fitness play out. A good example is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. I don't even know if it made it in. Actually, it didn't make it into the Joe Rogan episode. But I prepped up all of the different times that Donald Trump has bungled on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter and called it repeatedly invisible. Like, that it has the ability to be invisible, that you can't see the plane. He'd ask people and pilots around him, you can't see the plane, right? And they go, right, sir. I'll give you another example. Um, He was talking about the launching propulsion system off of Navy ships. It's called catapulting. They catapult the plane off of the ships. Trump thinks that the magnetic launching mechanism on the boats is impenetrably complicated. His quote was, you have to be Albert Einstein to understand this. They're too dangerous. We can't use them anymore. We have to always use the steam propulsion now and forever. And like people in the Navy have tried to correct him on this, and they've actually just went ahead and done it, kind of disregarding him. That's a problem in and of itself. If the Navy has to go... Uh, the president's just simply not right about this. We need to disobey orders. We're grinding gears. His inability to perceive important technical data and other 
law-based data, it actually is hindering his ability to do the job as president. See, I don't know if it's an inability so much as a refusal. I think his attitude toward thinking is very similar to his attitude toward exercise, where if you do too much of it, you drain your physical battery. I think having a very complicated concept explained to you works in much the same way. He feels like he's losing brain juice every time he has to listen for more than 10 seconds. This, this is a strong argument, but l- let me rebut this. How long can you choose to not run like Donald Trump before we start to speculate whether or not you're actually able to? Oh, people have been speculating about this since, I believe, before he took office. I think if there's any argument to be made that he has a mental illness, that illness would be narcissistic personality disorder. That's the likeliest culprit. And that would feed into what I'm saying. That would feed into what I'm saying because he's such a narcissist that he believes he doesn't need things explained to him because he automatically understands everything he sees just by looking at how it's phrased. I also would like to know more about this partial physical that he went in for in unplanned capacity a couple of weekends ago. I'm not saying that's an article of impeachment, but... I think it would be good for the American people to know more about that. We just blew right past that whole episode. My list, it it starts with obstruction of judicial processes and the contravention, which is just a fancy word for a violation of the spirit of the separation of powers. So this obstruction of justice and judicial processes thing began with James Comey. He asked James Comey to terminate an investigation into Mike Flynn, who had problematic ties to Turkey and Russia. Remember, Mike Flynn was actually trying to kidnap Fatullah Gulen from Pennsylvania. They were actually fairly far along in that plot. There was going to be money exchanged for that plot. James Woolsey blew the whistle on that plot. That plot was reported in the Wall Street Journal back in 2017. Like, that's not conjectural. So James Comey was investigating a legitimate thing involving Mike Flynn, and then also Mike Flynn's ties to Russia, which go all the way back to Mike Flynn attending an RT gala and sitting at the same table as Jill Stein. There was enough there for the FBI to look into this. And Mike Flynn's departure from the Obama administration, not super smooth. Comey, all of this is to say, Comey was acting very much within legitimate purview of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Then he fires James Comey to stop the FBI from, as he said to Lester Holt, looking into this Trump-Russia stuff. He said he thought about this Trump-Russia stuff and thought there was just nothing there. And so he fired James Comey. It turns out there was something there. He was, in fact, trying to build a tower in Moscow, and he didn't want people to find out about it. That's why he fired James Comey. Uh, Then the investigation rolls on. He demands that Jeff Sessions, who recused himself early in this, he demands that Jeff Sessions unrecuse himself, which is like not a thing, but is a thing if you want to obstruct judicial processes and undermine the Mueller investigation, because he wanted to alter the course of the investigation. In fact, he wanted Sessions to fire Mueller. That didn't work because Sessions wouldn't unrecuse himself. But he still attempted to fire Mueller in the middle of the probe. And the only reason that attempt didn't get further and more publicized is because of Don McGahn stopping him. But it didn't stop Trump from trying to violate the law, trying to contravene the law. Then, during the trials of some of his compatriots, like Flynn and Manafort, 
he started trying to discourage witnesses from cooperating, talking about how anyone who cooperates is a rat. He called Manafort a brave man for refusing to break and said that flipping ought to be outlawed. I know these tweets all seem like a thousand years ago, but he was putting those out into the media in real time to try to alter the course of that trial. And then Flynn's lawyer left a voicemail to Flynn saying, the president supports you. So that's, again, Flynn's lawyer. The question has to be, has Flynn's lawyer know about that? We'll never know because of attorney-client privilege, but connect the dots here. You don't have to be a genius. Trump has been trying to undermine the judicial processes for as long as possible. And the obstruction of Congress stuff is part of that. But to ignore Comey through Mueller all the way up to now is to really do a disservice to the... It's it's to only focus on the tip of the iceberg and not look at this entire iceberg that's been forming the entire course of his presidency. Looking at this list, this is a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. This is Trump careening from impulsive counterintuitive decision to impulsive counterintuitive decision. This is what The Sopranos would be like if Paulie was in charge. Because each time he makes a decision, he realizes, oh shit, this makes me look super guilty. So then he tries something else, only to realize, oh shit, this also makes me look super guilty. And everything he does after that makes him look super guilty. Even when you keep the most damning stuff, it just paints a, as you said, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the most important part, and the whole reason I want to spell this out is, I think this is being really lost by the Democrats, and I should have probably put this earlier in the show. He's not going to stop doing things like this. If he gets reelected, this pattern of behavior is going to continue, especially if impeachment becomes, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, just a political exercise, just the new government shutdown. This is where we're at now. This is the new low. I think if there's one single reason the Democrats didn't pursue impeachment proceedings on these grounds, it's because they just didn't have enough documentation, which is something you need in a legal proceeding. You need a lot of paper. You need a lot of evidence. And that's one thing Trump has done right if he wants to avoid the fuzz. He never writes anything down. Or if anything is written down, it's it's written on a single piece of paper in big letters that he immediately destroys. You're right, that sort of about the paper. I, I think what you need is a story. You need a story with a clear through line, a clear theme, and to be able to demonstrate that Ukraine is not an isolated incident. It's not. It, it because it'd be like weird if like Nixon was just breaking into the Watergate that one time. He had already earned the moniker of Tricky Dick. This was just kind of the ultimate fruition of Tricky Dick. Boy, that all seems so quaint compared to God. Does it ever? Next, let's talk about abuse of powers. So I threw this one on here because I, I don't think a lot of people latched onto it, but. This is a clear abuse of power. He called for Jamel Hill, who was an ESPN reporter, to be fired from her job because of her comments on Twitter. And he pressed on this to the point where ESPN demanded an apology from Jamel Hill. And then ultimately, in 2018, six months later, when the heat died down, she was let go from her job. 
Trump. Uh, see, I d- this is pretty tricky if we're talking about abuse of powers because ESPN is a private organization that is not beholden to Trump. It was their decision to demand an apology from her. Yep, it was I agree a on all very that. stupid decision yep. to demand an apology from her. And the sports media does not have a good record about these things. They make very questionable decisions, especially when it comes to their honor staff who are female and of color. It's not about how ESPN acts, though, in this case. It's merely the act of the president of the United States of America using a public venue to attack a private citizen to demand that private citizen be fired from their job. That is an abuse of... Of the office. See, I think it, we could more fairly call it an abusive office if he tried to sign an executive order firing Jamela Hill. Well, he but can't. Uh, well, Twitter, isn't, is, nah, Twitter isn't a power he can abuse. The president can move markets, Jess, and he has moved markets. Don't tell me that Twitter's powerless. Don't tell me that Twitter's got no teeth. I'm not saying it's powerless. My. My contention here is that Twitter is not a power exclusive to the president that he can exploit on his own. But I believe that his Twitter account gained a new power in November of 2016 when he became elected to the president of the United States of America. And in a lot of cases, the official White House account is almost exclusively just mirrors of what the at real Donald Trump account puts out. So that is... Those are his thoughts. Um, That is the president speaking, and Donald Trump is using that stroke of the fact that the media moves at the beat of the president, and he used that to put Jamel Hill on blast. So, like, again, this is kind of the low-level abuse of power, but I think it's a substantial one. Calling for a private citizen to be fired as the president of the United States of America, Barack Obama never did that. George Bush never did that. No, he didn't, because both of them are fairly restrained people. But I would still call that more an abuse of platform than an abuse of presidential power. Yeah, okay. I, I, all right. All right. Now, see, I, I think it's an abuse of the office. I think he's using... So it's not necessarily a presidential power. It's not like you get the power to tweet, but that station. He's using the station of president to imbue himself with a certain degree. I don't want to get lost on Jamel Hill. But then we get into using the orphaning of children as a means of border security, and more importantly here, um, not more importantly than the human rights violations, which are an abuse of power in and of themselves, but not being forthright with Congress throughout the entirety of that process about the nature of the program. So, like, that fits into what Congress wanted to get him on with the obstruction of Congress, but I think it's its own issue because, yeah, of course the president has the right to secure the border, but the president doesn't have the right to violate the Geneva Convention in the process of securing the border. There's obvious limits of what rights the president can restrict of even non-citizens during the process of performing basic functions of the law. And I, I believe that is what is happening in the border detention facilities and the administration's lack of transparency on it are both impeachable. I'm not sure that human rights violations of this magnitude are the sort of thing that are within Congress's jurisdiction, and I wish it was in somebody's jurisdiction and that they were doing something about it. Because when we hear, for example, that the Chinese government, say, is separating 
God, I hope I'm getting this oh, pronunciation the right. The Uyghurs, thank you. That they're separating Uyghur children from their parents and forcibly placing them with ideologically respectable Chinese Han, families. Han families, yes, a Han China Chinese families. I follow this issue. I'm into this issue. That we would call a human rights violation. We would call it a human rights violation if it were happening anywhere but America. This is an orphaning program. It's it like the reductive way of putting it is kids in cages. This is actually, it's as bad as throwing a child in jail is. The supposition is that the child's in jail and someone somewhere nearby is the parent. That is actually not the program. The program, as designed by the executive branch, is to separate the child from the parent. And we have a couple thousand of these children who have been lost in the system by a program that was designed to do exactly that. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much Trump himself had to do with the design of that program. Stephen Miller had everything. Oh, yes, Stephen Miller. But Stephen Miller would design this program if you gave him carte blanche. Stephen Miller is... Well, that's what the reportage on this says, too, is that Stephen Miller, who was Trump's opening act on the campaign trail a lot of times, uh, he he was very hands-on in creating that program. I believe it. And I believe Trump does not care what Stephen Miller does. And if he does care, he's probably very pleased. Another one I threw on here, this is a little bit more esoteric, but I also think fits into abusive power here. Stopping or going to the government of Israel and having them block Rashida Tlaib from coming into Israel to or Palestine to visit her family. Um, I don't, don't want to get like totally lost in the weeds in this story, but the key beat in this is the president of the United States of America actually contacted Netanyahu's government and specifically asked them to stop a member of U.S. Congress from doing something within the role of their congressional function. So again, violating separation of powers, you know, like, what is the actual official role of this? Why is the president, like, trying to put their thumb on a member of Congress? Like, there, there's just really no good answers for this other than Trump just flexing. See, that is an abuse of power because anyone's cat could have a Twitter account, but only another head of state such as Trump could have a direct line to Netanyahu that enables him to make a request like this. Next, uh, emoluments. There are a lot of people who want to go super long on emoluments. I I actually, you know, I I will tack on the Chinese patent stuff for Ivanka and other Trump-branded properties very clearly smacks of emoluments, but it's kind of like on the fringes. you got to demonstrate it. That's tricky, going back to your paper thing. Um, However, what I don't think is tricky to demonstrate is the increasing membership fees at Mar-a-Lago that went up. I believe overnight after he got inaugurated. So you could just connect the dots between these two things. He like doubled the fees that it cost to be in Mar-a-Lago. I think, uh, you know, in emoluments, getting back to that a little bit, Sunland, I lost in the fray here, Sunland paid a million dollars to become an ambassador. Like that, well, that's, that's how, how everyone gets ambassadorships. No, if you recall, is. Anna Wintour was being considered for an ambassadorship because she was a big Obama bundler. That is simply how these things are done. Oh, yeah, for sure. No, I mean, this would be if we were actually going to go after some of the rot, like if we actually cared about Hunter Biden type problems, right? If, if we weren't just saying Hunter Biden like a totem, we would go at ambassadors would be the first place you would start to clean up the swamp. Oh, absolutely. 
if you actually cared I, about that. If if we really cared about this, we would have a rule in place saying that to, even to be considered for a diplomatic posting, you have to don't you have to have donated no more than X to any particular candidate or party in the past X years. We haven't even really gotten into, I don't know where things stand with the inaugural fund, because that inaugural fund smacked of glut and self-enrichment. It was like the largest inaugural fund ever. And if you look at that inauguration, the people that they hired to play that inauguration, just everything about the production in that inauguration, it had four times the amount of money that Barack Obama had. You tell me which one, and I'm not just saying in terms of like, which one did you feel better about watching on your television screen, but like, which one looks like the bigger, better production, you know, which one looks like watching WWE on TV and which one looks like watching a third rate indie federation taping at a YMCA (laughs) under fluorescent lights. Well, if I recall correctly, didn't Obama get Beyonce to play at least one of his inaugurations? Yes, they had, I mean, that was with a quarter of the budget of Trump. Trump had, like, DJ, like, Robbie Laser Drums or something. I, I remember there was very distinctly some, like, Laser Drums dude. His innovative and dynamic drumming has been seen everywhere, from the Super Bowl to the Academy Awards. Please welcome the rhythmic beats of Robbie Drums. <laughs> And I'm sure, I'm sure Obama would have paid Beyonce whatever she asked for, but I feel like this is one of the rare things she would do for free. So, I mean, all of that stacks on. But here's another really obvious emoluments one. Charging the Secret Service, who is there to protect the President of the United States, to stay on Trump properties. Dude, if you're so rich, pay your bodyguards Comp them for their rooms. If you're worried about getting hurt, take care of your bodyguards. Why would you charge the Secret Service over this? You know what? I bet if Trump wasn't such a germaphobe, he would do the Henry VIII thing and have all of his bodyguards sleeping on pallet beds in front of his own bed. Uh, that that would uh, it's just that was very open and shut you could go to the secret service records you could pull the receipts congress has the ability to dig into that one immediately <laughs> i mean come on uh, and, and then the charging foreign dignitaries at trump properties uh, this gets into foreign influence it, it's just foreign dignitaries should not be staying at trump branded properties that should no, be no but rule. they know it's a very very easy way to earn his favor yep no, it's it's a problem, though. I, I mean, it, it is a contravention of the Emoluments Clause. No one's ever been tried under the Emoluments Clause. Also, you don't get tried under it. You would get impeached under it, which is not a legal procedure. It's like a political one. It's like somewhere in between both legal and political, sitting in between both, yet neither. Like Dick Cheney's view of the vice presidency. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's a throwback reference as well um wow remember when we thought dick cheney was the worst person in the white house yeah what a far off time that seems 
Yeah, evil competence is scary in its own different way. It, it, like, but this is kind of like reckless um, and stupid incompetence. Sadly, but, not quite reckless and stupid enough to make all of these possible impeachment proceedings. At least no, not according to Nancy Pelosi. Not according to Nancy Pelosi of the Democrats. I, this is, you know, I, from a riff on the last episode when I was talking about centrism, my big problem with, like, Pelosi's brand of centrism is how do you look at the articles of impeachment and kind of get a sense of what the core values of Chuck and Nancy's version of the Democratic Party are? I don't think this is centrism. I think they're just being very aggressively lawyerly. And as bad as that looks to people like us on the outside who wish they would have acted faster and pursued more charges, maybe this is legitimately the best case they thought they could build. Then we're really fucked as a country. I mean, because at a certain point you have to go like – if you don't hold him accountable on some of these items, at least at bare minimum, if you want to go, okay, the abuse of powers list that I threw out, not the most impressive one, you can make a much longer one. Um, the emoluments one, you can make a much longer one than I did. Um, but the obstruction of justice stuff, to, to actually not spell out that narrative, we're just saying we're writing that all off. That's all a sacrifice zone. Um, even the contravention of election law, we start with Stormy Daniels. Illegal use of campaign funds during the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, did it probably alter the course of the election? Yeah, he lost the popular vote and narrowly won the Electoral College with 70,000 votes divided between three states. I think that Stormy Daniels coming out on the same week as the Grabber by the Pussy video probably would have submarined him. Um, I, it certainly would have changed the course of the narrative. Everyone would have been talking about Trump and Stormy Daniels for that month. No doubt in my mind. Think about how long Stormy Daniels was a thing in 2018 when we were talking about her. That was like six months. It would have completely been the final month of the campaign. But that's neither here nor there. The point is, he was named in New York State as Individual One. He was the guy who pro- who directed Michael Cohen to break the law. The law was broken at the direction of Donald Trump, Individual One. That's contravention of election law. Soliciting material from Russia and cutouts of Russia like WikiLeaks or the... Groups like WikiLeaks, if you want to get more technical, just to cover all of my bases here, groups like WikiLeaks that openly welcome intel gathered by the Russian government and who also talk openly with Donald Trump Jr. about timing the releases to be maximally effective and everything like that. Soliciting material assistance from a foreign power during the 2016 campaign and then following it up. In the lead-up to the 2020 election, the one that's coming up, the one that has not occurred yet, but is coming, he's soliciting material assistance from the Ukraine and China. And I think he's, like, teased Russia, but, like, you know, I mean, obviously he wants it still. But, but soliciting material assistance about Joe Biden from Ukraine and then bringing up material assistance from China about Elizabeth Warren. That kind of got lost in the weeds there, but he also did that as well. You know, I think I heard something not too long ago about him soliciting material assistance from Lebanon for some reason. I don't know what Lebanon could possibly offer. I don't know. Um, But this is, I mean, he has a clear pattern of behavior on this. And this is completely contrary to U.S. election law. It's just, it, it, it is the spirit of U.S. election law is that Americans should decide American elections. 
Absolutely. And I think these charges would have been easier to make against them if they had been made by letter in polite language. Because when Trump gives a speech saying, hey, Russia, give us whatever you've got, you can never tell if he's kidding or not. And perhaps the possibility that he's kidding shouldn't matter. Well, you know, what's interesting about that example is that the Mueller report kind of goes into extended length. I I think that's one of the episodes I was able to get up before we just kind of ran out of time to keep covering it. But yeah, the Mueller report goes into that whole episode and behind the scenes, he's very dog serious about it. He wants that. He's talking to people about getting it. Yeah, he's talking to people about getting it. So, but, so no, but you now have you have the textual evidence that you were looking for before. Mueller has done that background. So the question is, was Trump serious when he was talking about that uh, that day? Russia, if you're listening and you have the thirty thousand emails, well, Mueller's reporting, um, and Mueller's team sort of discovered that on either side of that, Trump was actively seeking that material assistance and was like very obsessed with WikiLeaks at the time. See, then it becomes a question of what do you interpret as Trump just doing his usual stream of consciousness thing, consciousness thing when his advisors are listening versus Trump explicitly ordering his advisors to seek out this material. Well, he was doing that, too. But maybe you're not so sure about that. And then you look at the Ukraine thing and it makes things a little bit clearer that that's also what he was doing with Russia. Right. I mean, that's the thing is like he is serious about this. And if anything, if if he wasn't serious about it with Russia, then he would have been deeply chastened by all of this. This this would have washed over him like a wave of enlightenment. Jess, oh, you can't do that. You, you can't even have the appearance of that. I best not get on the phone with President Zelensky and ask him to do me a favor because I have learned my lesson by being wrongfully accused of seeking material assistance from Russia. I am chastened. I see the light. Does that sound like Donald Trump? No. I am chastened. I see the light. (laughs) That sounds like something he would say at a speech in an imitation of what the Democrats want him to sound like. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, he, he, what he's realized is you just keep pushing the envelope. I, I, this is, I mean, it's a very scary precedent that we're on right now. And, and this is my big problem with their, like the Democrats weak approach on this is Matt Gates is not slowing down. He's speeding up. Jim Jordan is not slowing down in a couple of weeks. He might not have a shirt on anymore. Uh, I mean, Mitch McConnell, not slowing down. He's speeding up. They are all continuing to push the envelope further. And Trump, it's always amusing to me to think of Mitch McConnell speeding up when he alternately reminds me of a cartoon turtle and a cartoon snail. Yeah, I know. Think about this is we are we've gone from turtle snail pace to echidna. Echidna. Yeah, you you like that. Another deep pull. I think that's the first time I've ever heard anyone use the word echidna in a discussion of congressional politics. Well, see, again, well patreon.com slash DWATG. <laughs> a bunker show is all we are asking for primo insights. Gross negligence with sensitive national security information. I am amazed that the Democrats have not pounced all over this because Trump has just been giving them countless examples of this from Trump. But her... <laughs> emails 
<laughs> there, there are so many examples. Yes, from the talking on unsecured cell phones and other mediums to moving things involving Zelensky to servers and secret servers, all the, the secret emails. How about Rob Porter and countless others having access to national security information and national security clearances and getting overrides when those people that Trump submits for background checks can't pass a background check or just ignoring giving those people background checks. And that's how you know there's no such thing as a deep state, because if there was, these people wouldn't make it past the bathroom. Right? Uh, boy, I've never heard it articulated like that, but if there was a deep state, you'd think that the background check would be the thing that would drag your ass down no matter how hard you are. You'd think... But, you know, I'm sure the QAnon people will think there's a reason these people are getting background checks. It's one of those little deep state tricks. I'm sure Jeffrey Epstein is behind that as well. Ugh. He always is. He's always up to something. So anyways, that's the list. I've got obstruction of judicial processes and contravention of the separations of powers. I've got the abuse of powers. I've got emoluments and self-enrichment. Contravention of election law, gross negligence with sensitive national security information, and bonus round if you want to go there, mental capacity, mental acuity, mental fitness, ability to do the job uh, if you want to go there. But certainly those other ones, I, I think the Democrats have left a lot on the table. And as we've said kind of throughout here, I view it as dangerous for the country because if you don't draw a line on these things, it's just going to get worse. Well, it's very clear that the Democrats, no matter what they're able to pursue in terms of impeachment proceedings, do have a problem with all of these things. I don't think Nancy Pelosi is sleeping on these things. She's just pursuing the charges that she thinks she can win with. Which I am is unconvinced that Pelosi cares about these things. You think she doesn't care? What makes you think she does? <laughs> well, as I recall, she has spoken out about all of these things many, many times and characterized them as something a president should not do. Yeah, but saying stuff is good. Like, what has she done other than, like, saying stuff to make you believe that she's serious about some of these other things? I'll tell you what. If it comes out later that she had legal justifications for pursuing all these charges, that people were advising her to pursue all these charges because they thought her case was strong and she refused, then we'll say you're right. But I don't think we're going to find out about that anytime soon. Well, I don't think it's about legalities. Again, impeachment sits between legal and political. High crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah, it does sit between legal and political, which means the legal aspect is very much present. And if she minds her P's and Q's on the legal aspect, she has a much greater chance of achieving the political objective, which is to unseat Donald Trump. I just don't think that there's ambiguity about contravention of election law, for example. He was named as individual one. That's pretty open shot. I, I so I, I mean, I, I think she's got the evidence there. But like, let's let's move on. Let's go across the pond here. Let's talk a little bit about Jeremy Corbyn and labor losing. I cannot tell you how fed up I am with people looking for parallels between the British election and any 
other election. British politics are not the same as American politics at all. Someone like Jeremy Corbyn would be permanently exiled to the backbenches if he could keep his seat, if he were an American or if he were a Canadian, as a matter of fact. He'd be to the he left of He could never Bernie become Sanders. a leader of anything in America or Canada. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, he's to the left of Sanders. There's a sort of no two ways around it. So, I mean, I think that there is... There's a lot of different things like the the kind of the the analysis here has been that he was too far left and that he's anti-Semitic. And then, of course, the, the port over to America here is therefore, ipso facto, the Democrats better nominate a moderate. And Joe Biden chirped up today and said, what about me? Good old Uncle Joe. Um, and also so did Bloomberg. <laughs> Look, it's very realistic that the Democrats could nominate someone who is very very solidly on the left, but is also not a complete piece of shit. And there are a lot of progressives who who are not on board with how far left Corbyn is. So to say the same fate could befall Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, I think is errant. And I also think, I mean, there's a number of other things going on domestically in the UK, right? Like one, the Brexit divide between leave and remain is not cleanly split between the conservatives and labor. There are a lot no, of people it's not. in labor. It's split between conservatives and labor on the leave side and the Lib Dems and to an extent the Scottish Nationalist Party on Remain. Right. That's the delineation. Right, right. And then, yeah, it, it's, it kind of splits labor up. So for Johnson to make this a referendum about Brexit and to bungle Brexit all the way up to the next vote, essentially, was very clever because Labour, I I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think it mattered who they nominated because of the way that the Brexit divide cleaves that party. I'm not sure that Labour voters care too much about Brexit. I think, by and large, they accept it as an inevitability. They just want it done on Corbyn's terms and not Johnson's terms. I think that's part of it too, but but I do think that there are some people who are still actually kind of excited about Brexit in whatever form it happens or just want to get it over with already. And then there's, again, a decent amount of labor voters who feel as though the country made a horrible mistake and was lied into that referendum vote and was lied throughout that referendum vote. And that, you know, like Nigel Farage was driving around in a bus that had a giant friggin' lie on the side of it, you mm-hmm. know? So, I mean, yeah. I think that there, that definitely is a mood that is held by a lot of labor voters. And so one of the problems for labor is you're trying to triangulate inside of your own party, and so you're not clearly remain. Um, and so if someone's upset with the way Boris Johnson is doing Brexit, it's not or, – or, and then the fact that Boris Johnson is doing Brexit, not just how, but the fact that he is doing Brexit, who are you voting for? It's not clear that Corbyn's your guy. Um, then, you know, we can get into Corbyn and the Jewish community. I don't want to go through, like, Jeremy Corbyn's entire history with the Jewish community. Suffice it to say that I view what he had done through his career as kind of uniquely alienating himself from the Jewish community in a way that doesn't neatly analogize with any American politician other than maybe, let's say, like, Ilhan Omar. Uh, and he is much worse than her. Yeah. Much worse. Because... 
I don't remember Ilhan Omar actually using the word Jews when she says things that verge on anti-Semitic. Corbyn does that. The most important thing is it's not whether or not you, not you, Jess, or, or, or me, Chris, um, it's not whether any one of us here thinks that that is true. It's how Corbyn and wh- whatever political candidate is being received in the Jewish community. And in the Jewish community, if you just kind of read press over there, Corbyn is kind of like, eh, he, he does not um, engender confidence and warmth and good feelings uh, among that community. Corbin is the sort of guy you would not invite to Shabbat dinner. And you are supposed to, well, I wouldn't say you're supposed to, but you are encouraged to invite Gentiles to Shabbat dinner just to be nice. You wouldn't invite Corbin, not just because he'd make your grandmother uncomfortable, but because he'd probably shit in the soup. Damn. All right. All right. Um, and then we, then we also, I feel this has been deeply unaccounted for, the urban-rural divide in the Yeah, UK. I do want to touch on that because it's not as clean as urban-rural because there are some larger cities across the UK that were very pro-Brexit. As I recall, the two cities that were the most pro-Remain were London and Cambridge, two of the most educated cities in the UK. That's very different from the kind of sentiment you would find in Manchester or Birmingham or Liverpool. Also true. Yeah, so your the class divide thing is important here. Um, if, you, if you're working class, yeah, Birmingham is a really good example. British Steel has been on the mm-hmm. decline. A lot of you know the trade unionists and stuff have found themselves kind of struggling to adjust with the changing millennium here. So I think that's worth it. But I was thinking about the rural side of this, as in you got this rural population that's super receptive to uh, when Britain was great narrative. And Britain is a country that is super susceptible to a when country X was great narrative. And this is not just unique to you know Britain. This is you know this can happen in Germany. This can happen in Poland. This can happen actually did happen in Poland with the Law and Justice Party. This of course can happen in America here. It's this appeal to this past when your country was really kicking it. And you know the Brits can look back and go, oh, the sun never sets on the British Empire, except that it kind of did. And didn't it that suck? It did. And you mention in your notes that people in the English countryside can touch stones from the great era in castles. Yeah, You can yeah. do that in London, too. You can go down to Portsmouth and step onto Lord Nelson's flagship. English greatness can be found everywhere. But it's in the form of memorials, monuments, artifacts. If anyone claims they can restore that level of British greatness, they are selling a very seductive lie. It's so seductive, though. Uh, it, you know, it's back when men were free. It's back when, you know, things were just, they're just different. You know, everything was filmed in Cephia and it looked warm and inviting. No, no, it's not that simple. The world has moved on from depending on British leadership. Yeah, and, you know, the European Union is in place in part because of the hard-learned lessons of every country thinking that they were great, particularly within Europe. Yeah, many countries have been in that leadership position before for however short a time. I remember when Portugal was a vital naval power across the world. 
Who thinks of the Portuguese as world leaders anymore? Not even the Portuguese. Yeah, no, actually, they're they're part of a, what they're called the pigs um, during the last decade here. Portugal, <laughs> uh, Ireland, Greece, uh, Italy, and Spain, I believe, are the uh, five problem countries in the EU that needed to get bailed out. It's kind of the start of all of this, if, if you remember way back when. <sighs> wow. Yeah. Yes, I, I remember when Greece was the most irritating country in Europe. Right, right. And that was the start of it, though. That was the start of the, the international resentment was, oh, we've got to bail out Greece. Why is English money going to Greece? Why are we giving all this money away to Greece? All of our money, you know, so it's not just the immigration component of it, although I think a lot of the understanding of this issue has now been uh, the changing demography of the UK. We, we did numbers on this a while back, too, and it, it is... They have had a fairly stark demographic change over 25 years that you would be able to observe with the naked eye if you would live through it. However, I, I think a lot of the issue is the money going per- perceptually, leaving Britain and going to Greece. And, and people never getting that story in the news of the money coming back to them in the form of all of the good that the European Union does to the country. What, where I stand on the EU is that it's simply the direction most of the world is moving, where unions such as the EU of customs and of other economic matters simply make it easier to move goods and services, and there's a lot of value in that. Now, I will say that bailouts are one thing that can make that seem like a very bad idea for obvious reasons. Nobody likes to see a responsible country reward an irresponsible country. But at the same time, do you think it's better to leave Greece to its own devices and have absolutely no say in making it a healthier European partner? And if you're worried about an immigration crisis, the answer would almost certainly be, no, you actually want to stabilize the local economy there so that people don't want to leave that economy and go somewhere else. Yeah, there are always trade-offs. No, it's fairly straightforward. I, I will say, I don't think that international trade unions are so inevitable anymore. I think that right now in the 21st century... A very seductive narrative, uh, to use your framing earlier, has been sold to a lot of different countries of sort of national greatness. It's similar to Putin's favorite philosopher, Alexander Dugin. Um, It's this idea that we need to go back to a time when things were great, um, that there is... There isn't like really objective truth, like no one's really telling the truth. And so, you know, your own national history is kind of your own story and you could tell it to yourself. Um, yeah, uh, we're in a dangerous era where I, I don't think it's so certain that we end up with a greater intertwining of trade unions and a strengthening United Nations over the next 20 to 30 years. I think it could go the other way, honestly. But you have to consider what happens when people buy into the lie of national greatness and self-sufficiency and then live through it. Do they keep going ahead with it or do they realize that this was a terrible idea, their country is not better off, and they may have to rush back to those unions as soon as they can? Yeah, I think they realize that after the war. They do. They always do. 
Yeah, no, I, I, but I don't think they realized it before the war. <laughs> well, I do think there is a long history of countries lacking foresight and learning their mistakes the hard way. And I think my favorite example of that is the Great Depression. I think we could see a couple more of those if countries try to throw out more barriers to trade. Yeah, I reckon so. I, I reckon that the global slowdown will be pronounced. And I think the other thing, too, is if, if those countries throw up barriers to trade and then also at the same time try to pursue austerity measures, which will then slow down internal movement of cash even further. So, you know, you try to cut down social services as you've got an unemployment crisis. Like, the money is just going to—the liquidity crisis is going to really circle on itself. That's kind of the problem with a guy like Boris Johnson and the conservative party is their disposition in a time of crisis is going to be to cut. And that has not historically worked particularly well. Um, so my last note here for like Corbyn and Labor is that their get out the vote model and their election model must have clearly fucking sucked, or they didn't exist. Right? I yeah, don't I don't think have, I don't Corbyn takes these aspects of being a political party seriously because he doesn't see himself as the head of a political party whose function is to obtain political power. He sees himself as running an ideological apparatus. And that's all well and good for the time being if you demand ideological purity. But what does it get you? 199 to 398. Some bullshit <laughs> like that. I mean, like that. I don't have the particulars. Like, why did they lose the English countryside? I don't know. Here's what I can tell you. It's not just the candidate at the top when you have a blowout that bad. It's a much deeper infrastructural problem. Yeah, absolutely. And we see in the U.S. how much get out the vote and modeling matters. We see that on the Dem side, too. We see the value of good communications and good field operations. They can be enough to propel one candidate you thought was a joke over above and above much more established candidates that should be able to pay for better campaigning but don't get it. And if you have good mapping, you can lose the popular vote and still win the election, which is not necessarily analogous here, but the micro-targeting stuff that Trump and his team did, that's real. Like, they, they did take advantage of that in a way that Hillary Clinton's campaign got flanked on. I, I don't, I mean, I do get why the media still hasn't, really kind of hit that over the head. They they like to talk about Cambridge Analytica as purely a dirty trick, but it was more than that. It was, uh, in, in certain ways, a very legitimate modernization of Obama's whole online-based, web-based version of electoral politics. Yeah, with online research tools, you can get very granular information about your customers or your voters, as the case may be. Content marketers use this to decide which keywords they should be using on their landing pages. Why shouldn't political campaigns leverage technologies like that? By all means, they just shouldn't hand off that information to Russia. But that's that's, a, that's ideally. A yeah, I, I'd i rather you don't hand it off to foreign adversaries, uh, but that's a, that's a whole different thing. So I got one last question for you, Jess, here as we come hey, to the end of the show. Are you with Pete? And if so, why? <laughs> well, 
Being a Canadian citizen, I can't claim I'm with anybody because I have no way to be with them other than sending them some nice tweets. I will say that if I were able to vote or donate, I probably would be cautiously optimistic about Pete. Okay. What, what do you like about Pete? Well, I do think Pete has a very good ground game. I think he's hired the right people, which speaks well to his judgment, because hiring the right people is a very important part of being president. I think he has a good temperament. Uh, I do like quite a few of his policy ideas. I like his husband a lot. His husband is impossible not to like. Now, I will say that he has been a little bit clumsy when it comes to some of the scrutiny that's hitting him now that he is becoming a serious frontrunner. But that's pretty natural. I don't think it's possible to be as cool as a candidate just getting on the up and up as you are as a frontrunner. The one thing I think that he has strongly in his favor, I'm still... Solidly with Warren, actually, if, if anything, in light of today's news cycle, now more than ever, um, I'm solidly with Warren. But uh, the thing with Pete that he has going for him and why, unlike Joe Biden, who I think would lose to Donald Trump, I don't think Pete is necessarily going to lose to Donald Trump. I think he actually can be very competitive because I was just reading today, Trump's team just utterly disregards the guy. They don't think he can get the nomination. Like, they don't think he can win it. They have no plan for him. They don't discuss him in meetings. He doesn't come up much. And I I read that, and I was like, if they have no plan for Pete Buttigieg, and Pete Buttigieg ends up being the nominee, don't sit here and try to tell me on the air, oh, he can't win, Chris. No, he totally can. Given the fact that they have just let... If they let Buttigieg sneak up on them and get the nomination, which at this point, like now in November or December of 2019, we're not that far away from actually knowing who the nominee is going to be, and they would have let him sneak up over the last year here. I don't think they can beat him in a general election. I think the reason they feel like they don't have to take him seriously is because they don't see a path for Pete through Nevada and South Carolina, which is pretty hard to see, I will give you. But I don't think there's any harm in being overprepared. But that does seem like the sort of mistake the Trump campaign would make. No, I I just, I think that's one of his biggest affirmative arguments is that if Pete can somehow get through the primary, Trump and his team are going to have a hard time getting a handle on him. Pete is scrappy. He has shown that he is definitely willing to be a little prickly and like he, like he'll throw a punch. Like and that's a good thing. I, I I actually don't view that as a bad thing. Um, he's good at throwing a punch because his punches are the sort of punches you don't see coming. You yeah, they're always snappy see too. Trump punches coming because he never gets his shoulder in position right. Trump's his his whole act has gotten stale. It's the same. I mean, Sleepy Eyes has now moved from Chuck Todd to Joe Biden. You know, it crazy old. It's just very stock phrasing. All the yeah, stuff that I, was I, I can predict exactly what he would do if Pete were the nominee. It would be a lot of limp-wristed, lispy, effeminate voices. He would do that impression of Pete, even though that's not remotely what he sounds like. And that would actually be his undoing, because I, I, just, I just think going after the white gay guy, especially even for conservative, conservatives have gay family members. They're not going to like that. They're not going to like that. I, I actually think 
that Trump could get himself into trouble there. It's too obvious, and he, you're totally right. He will, he will inevitably, He'll do it. he won't be able to help himself from making the gay voice. And the funny thing is that I don't imagine Pete being prickly about it because it's just so tired. And Pete would just be wasting energy by getting angry about it. He sees it coming. We all see it coming. I mean, I think it would be a golden opportunity for him to punch back, though, at Trump. You know what I mean? Like, this is a great counterpunching opportunity because it's such a predictable punch from Trump that I, I do think that, yeah, Buttigieg, Buttigieg will be able to keep Trump guessing throughout the entirety of the general election if he is able to win the nomination. One last comment on Pete. I want to give a very big amount of credit to his communication director, Lee Smith. She has done a phenomenal job on this campaign with her go everywhere strategy. I think she is the not so secret sauce to Pete's success. Interesting. All right. So a thing to keep in mind here, if you guys are wondering what is getting Pete off of the ground. Um, so I wanted to get a different viewpoint in here. Cause like we, you know, we have, you know, a lot of Bernie, a lot of Liz going on up in this show here. We wanted to get some different perspectives of the race. I, don't, I can't find a Biden supporter um, in the wild. I do have a bunch of friends who are convinced that Biden is going to be the nominee, not necessarily because they want him to be the nominee, but because they imbue him with a sense of inevitability that they once imbued Hillary Clinton with. Uh, and, you know, that's not going to backfire at all. Yeah. No way. Lose with Joe. Joe's a no. Joe's a no. <laughs> uh, he, he can't win, guys. Like I, I mean, has it ever been more obvious that like this guy, under the bright lights of sustaining campaign scrutiny, will not last? That that the dude who shows up at the town hall and he challenges him to a, a push-up contest. I don't even want to dwell on did he call him fat or not. He challenged him to a push-up contest. The point's kind of moot, isn't it? Biden would see all of Trump's attacks coming. I do think he would have that presence of mind. And he'd block him with his face. Yes, he would not be able to restrain himself from punching back in his own most obvious way. All right, yeah, so that's my quick quick take here on Joe Biden. I think Brian wants to pick up that a little bit more. Just... Jess Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Find me on Twitter, JessAMorgan89. And if you want to find me talking about anything but politics, find me at the-editing-room.com. Check out my abridged scripts. I have a script for The Mighty Ducks coming up this week, so check it out. Don't worry about the government. Is a listener-supported podcast. That means you, a buck a show, is all I'm asking. If you enjoyed the show, if you got anything out of it at all, at all, or if you just value the production time, the effort, you want to help Brian get that microphone, a buck a show is all I am asking. You can go to patreon.com slash DWATG. If you want to do a lump sum donation, like, you know, if you want to, if you do a lump sum and you want to go for Brian's microphone, I will, I will set this aside. This is going to Brian's mic. So that is... PayPal.me slash PayDWATG. One-time lump sums through PayPal. PayPal.me slash PayDWATG. You can find me on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. You can find the show on Twitter run by that horrible Cody at D-W-A-T-G. He's the voice behind the brand over there. want to give a big thanks to Remedy. Uh, I want to plug her podcast, A Slow Drag with Remedy. Make sure you download that on 
iTunes and on Stitcher. She's uh, the person behind our nice new logo. I like the logo a lot. And I also want to make sure I thank um, Advanced Listener. I-, I need to come up with like a more full title for Brandon. But Brandon listens to the shows now, and he tries to catch any editing mistakes and that sort of thing. So I appreciate Brandon doing that. Uh, that That's good, especially on the episodes with like lots of extra clips and shit. So many things can go wrong. Um, and having someone doing that role is invaluable for, by all means, especially as I'm trying to do more ambitious production stuff. So big thanks to all the people who have helped out this show. Big thanks to you. Big thanks to Jess. And until the next one, bye-bye. Bye-bye.